You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. All right. So uh, we have Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 here. All right. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." For that, uh, Nick, good morning to all of you. It's good to see you guys. Um, there have been, as you probably can imagine, several occasions throughout the years where somebody will bring up a concern to me, whether regarding how we are handling a certain situation or how a ministry is being run or maybe a situation with a member or something like that. And I want to take all of those concerns uh, super seriously. That, that's my heart to do that. But there have been a couple of times um, over the past decade or so where somebody is telling me a concern, um, and I'm, I get confused because what they're saying doesn't match like what I, what I know to be true. And so I don't want to just assume that I know what's true, so I'll ask more questions, and the more talking that happens, the, the more confusing it gets. And then there have been a couple of times, and perhaps this is like unique for a pastor at Enclave, (laughs) as opposed to maybe somewhere else, they'll lean into me and they'll be like, well, actually, I'm a little drunk right now. (laughs) And then they're kind of like, oh, okay. Or like somebody else will come along and be like, yeah, they're, they're a little intoxicated right now. And now why, what would be the purpose of them telling me that? Like, is it that I, you know, you're the pastor, you need to keep tabs on who's drunk and who's not? Is that, is that the purpose? Like the Bible is against drunkenness? Is that, is that why they're telling me that? No, they're not telling me that for that reason. What they're telling me is like, maybe you shouldn't totally take serious what they're saying uh, right now, you know, because they're not, they're not in their right mind. Now, now last time that we were together, Right, we were talking about the events um, surrounding Pentecost. That this uh, Pentecost goes way back as a festival in Israel, but I'm talking about the Pentecost that occurred uh, in the early church, the, the, what we normally think about with reference to Pentecost. And if you remember, in that event, there's about 120 of Jesus' disciples. Where are they? They're in a house in Jerusalem, right? And then all of a sudden, a mighty rush of wind comes into the house, then these divided uh, tongues of fire are on each one of their heads, and then they begin to proclaim the mighty works of God in languages that they did not previously know. 
supernatural uh, event. Now, because it was Pentecost, that meant that in Jerusalem at the time, there were lots of people that wouldn't be there normally because Pentecost is a pilgrim festival. So there's lots of people in the streets. And so as a consequence of that, as people were passing by this house and all this stuff going on in this house, and I, it's hard to even imagine that, like 120 people uh, speaking in tongues and there's this wind and there's stuff. Is that flames on their head? Like all this stuff is going on. They're passing by this house, right? <clears throat> and they're hearing the mighty works of God spoken to them in their own native languages from where they came from. A supernatural, supernatural event. But there was two, if you remember last time, there were two reactions to all of that going on. There was uh, the group that was sort of confused but curious, and they asked the question, what does this mean? Now, there's a mistake on the slide here because it's actually from chapter 2. But, but there's, this, there's this one group. They're confused. They're curious, though, and they're, they're asking, what does this mean? But then there's a second group in verse 13, and they say they are filled with new wine. Right? Cheap wine is basically like these guys are just drunk on cheap wine. And so maybe we shouldn't take what they're saying too seriously. Now, it's at this moment that Peter stands up <clears throat> and he addresses the crowd that is, is present. And that's what we're going to talk about today. These two different groups, the confused group, but, but curious, but then also he's, he's uh, addressing this accusation of uh, drunkenness. And in this address, what he will do is he interprets and he defends what's going on in their midst in light of the Old Testament and in light of Jesus' resurrection. Now, his response is kind of, if you, if you look in Acts chapter 2, we're not going to cover all of it today, but verses 14 through 36, it's kind of constructed around three Old, Te Old Testament texts. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10, and then Psalm, 10, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. <clears throat> today, we're just going to cover that portion of his response where he leans into, I mean, much of what we're going to talk about today is just this quotation from Joel chapter, chapter 2. Now, in order to kind of fully understand, or perhaps not fully, but better understand what's going on with Peter quoting this, uh, this verse from Joel, I think it's necessary for us to do a couple of things. One is to remind ourselves, and maybe for you it's not reminding, it's learning for the very first time, but reminding ourselves of what the message of the book of Joel was about, because that's where this quotation is coming from. And then turn our attention, once we've done that, to think about Peter's response here in light of the message of Joel. So we're going to talk about Joel today. That, that'll be our first point. Then we're going to talk about Peter's response today. That'll be our second point. So let's first think about um, Joel, the book of Joel. It's in the Old Testament at the very end. It's one of the minor prophets. <clears throat> and we don't know a lot actually about the person of the prophet Joel. And there's a lot of debate about when was this exactly written and who was it exactly written to. But if you look at the text itself, it will give you clues to let you know the occasion of this writing and then also some the purposes for Joel writing this, this account. 
the prompting of this writing came about from a plague of locusts that ravaged the land of Judea and Jerusalem to the point where we read this in Joel chapter 1, verse 4. It says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, like there is no food left because of this huge swarm, this, this plague of locusts has eaten it all. Not only all the food that the people would have eaten, right? if you keep reading in Joel chapter 1, you learn that even the food that was meant for the flocks, and that had effect on temple worship because there's no, no grain to offer. Like there's no drink offerings. There's like, so the temple's basically like shut down. All of this is happening because of this locust plague. So that's the occasion. Now the purpose of Joel is to come along in the midst of that recent event. There's devastation all around them. And he prophesies by letting them know, okay, how should we understand this event? This wasn't just a plague of locusts and man, that was, that's too bad that that happened. No, there's more to it than that. He says, no, this is a judgment from God because of your idolatry. And it points forward to the final day of the Lord. Now, locusts and famine are a feature of the covenant curses of God kind of addressed in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So God comes into kind of like this marriage relationship with Israel. And he lets them know, look, if, if, you, are, um, if you cheat on me with foreign gods, right, and you try to find your life and your uh, uh, sustenance and salvation in other things other than me, the Lord of life, then one of the things that will happen is that locusts will come and you will experience famine. So that's in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So, okay, what you're experiencing is as a result of your idolatry. That's one thing that's going on. But then he describes like the locusts coming in in a pretty interesting way. They're sort of depicted as this invading foreign army of warriors led by God himself against Israel. Right now, and even some people wonder, like, is the second chapter of Joel, is that an actual army that is kind of being described as a locust, you know, you know uh, in, in kind of patterned after what he says in verse 1. There's debate about that. But the big point is, is like all of this is coming, right, as a result of their idolatry, and it's meant to warn them. It's kind of like a small day of the Lord to warn them regarding a bigger final day of the Lord to come. Now, we've said before, regarding the day of the Lord, especially when we were in uh, Mark chapter 13, that there are several days of the Lord in the Bible, right? And in each case, it is a situation where God um, visits the earth in a very profound way that kind of changes the course of history, and he puts things back into order. It's sort of like there's this cyclical theme that happens in the Bible where there, God, God creates and then our sin decreates and everything kind of falls apart. He, he, he intervenes and he kind of re, recreates and then it decreates, recreates, decreates. And, and he's kind of like presenting this pattern over and over for us to understand the nature of who he is to the world and what our sin does to it. 
So that's part of what's going on in the day of the Lord. The God visits the, the world. He brings order out of chaos. He brings a new situation. And he does that by judging his enemies and then bringing salvation to those who turn to him in repentance. Right now, the other thing that we've said about these different days of the Lord is that they are all patterned after and they all look forward to this final day of the Lord. And so we see that final day of the Lord kind of spoken of in a more expanded type of way in Joel chapter 3, the end time judgment of God. The New Testament will talk about this in terms of Jesus' second coming. So one purpose of the book of Joel uh, in response to this plague of locusts is to say, look, this is not just a plague. This is for you to know that God is, is coming in judgment against your idolatry, and that is meant to warn you regarding this future day of the Lord. And the proper response, and this is the other purpose of Joel, is repentance, right? To turn back to Yahweh, right? So part of the covenant curses, they're, they're, not, they're not just punishment. Right? They, are, they are designed to sort of like put you into a spot where it's like you're, there's no longer any good options. Right? If you choose something other than God to find your life in, right, the consequences are you're going to experience things that are associated with death, such as a plague of locusts and famine. Right? And it's this very, very tangible like trying to, uh, of explanation, look, you don't find life in me, you experience death. And he's like doing it in this, in a, in a, to them it feels like this massive way, but it's like this micro way actually, because the, the plague of locusts is nothing like, like the final day of the Lord, right? And even locusts show up in Revelation. But it's like in this micro way, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's, and you're down in the corner, you're out of options, and then you're like, oh, right. I am in a covenant relationship with the Lord of life. I, I will turn back to God, right? So God is a-okay with using painful circumstances to kind of put you into a corner where you are out of options and where you say, okay, Lord, I turn, I turn, back, I turn back to you now. I call upon you in repentance, which means to turn back. And so this is a regular feature like within the prophets, and the way that Joel puts it is this way in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. So why did people rend their garments in the Old Testament? Because they were sorrowful to show what? Grief, that's right, to show grief. And, and in this case and in this context, it's like grief over what they've done. But what Joel is saying is like, don't just do the outward sign, right? It's your hearts that have turned from me. So rend your hearts. And then he goes on to say, return to the Lord your God because of his character. Now he's going to talk about his character. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He keeps his covenant, even if you're breaking the covenant. And he relents over disaster. Right. So you, some of you may be here, like, you feel like your life 
This is not the only explanation for painful circumstances. That's not what I'm trying to say. But at least we ought to consider, like, when, when you feel like you're getting backed and backed and backed into this, this corner, it may be to get your attention because you've been wandering away from the Lord of life and God loves you too much. The last thing you want God to do. So this is like a, this is maybe the biggest difference between the children of God and those who, do, who are not the children of God. Those who do not belong to God, God lets them go. Do whatever you want. And then they just keep going down that path towards death. But for those who are children, when we begin to wander off, he loves us too much to just kind of let that keep going. So he creates situations where it's like, ah, there's no more good options. And I, I don't know what to do. And then you, oh, oh, that's right. Father, help me. I return to you. And, and then God's like, okay, yeah, I understand my son. And I will always receive you. Like he's compassionate. He has covenant faithfulness. And so that's part of the purpose of what, what Joel is, is doing. He's calling upon them to return to Yahweh and, and to escape the day of the Lord, the future day of the Lord in response to this little day of the Lord that he has sent with, by sending these locusts. It's all meant to help them understand these, these concepts and, and these realities. Right? So that's the context. If, if we think about the whole book of Joel, in which this quotation from Peter comes when, when he talks about Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which is a passage that happens, so there's this call to repentance in the early part of Joel 2, then the people respond, it records their response, and so they're, they're starting to return to the Lord and experience his salvation. And then what Joel says happens next in the passage that Peter quotes is, look, there's going to come a time there's going to come a time in the future where God is going to pour out his spirit, not just on one prophet, me, the prophet Joel, but he's going to pour it out on all people and they will prophesy. They will call people to repentance. They will warn people about the coming day of the Lord. So that, that's kind of like the backdrop that Peter is, is, or maybe the lens is a better way to talk about it, the lens through which Peter looks through to understand this event of Pentecost. So we've talked about the message of Joel. Now let's talk about Peter's response to this crowd. So remember, the crowd, they are responding to everything that they see in two ways. One is curiosity, confused curiosity, but curiosity and then one is with an accusation. There's one group that's saying, these guys are just drunk. Yeah, I know I'm hearing people speak in my own native tongue, even though they've never learned it, but I attribute that to drunkenness. And now Peter is responding to both the confusion and the accusations in this way, beginning in the latter part of verse 15. It says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. Like most people are not drunk by 9 a.m. Peter doesn't know some of the people I know, but most people are not drunk by 9 a.m. And Peter's, so he's reasoning with them at this point, but then he's going to point to the scriptures. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Right? And then here comes the quotation, or at least part of it we'll read now. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All kinds of people. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And then skipping down to the latter part of verse 18. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So what Peter is saying is, look, what you are seeing, what you're hearing, what you're experiencing, it's not attributed to drunkenness. It's actually this end time outpouring of God's spirit on all people, and the consequence of that is that these people are prophesying. So in the Old Testament, it talks about, and not just in Joel chapter 2, but in other places, like Isaiah 32, 15, for example, Isaiah 40, in Ezekiel, uh, there are a couple of passages, like 39, 29, where it talks about at the end of time, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all of his people. In the last days. Now, in the New Testament, the way that the New Testament authors understand the last days is kind of like this. There's two ages. There's the age that this present age, and then there's the age to come. And then there's this overlap right here in the middle that spans from Jesus' first coming to his second coming like or, or Pentecost, some people uh, assign the beginning to different spots, but the point is around his first coming and his second coming. And these, that whole time period is referred to as the last days, right? And so what Peter is saying, look, this is not drunkenness. This is God pouring out his spirit on all people on the last day, right? Then... The result of that, the effect of God pouring out his spirit on his people is prophecy. Prophecy. Right? That they would speak the mighty words of of God. They would warn against future judgment. They would be praising God. They would be calling people to repentance. Right? Those are all features of prophecy if you think about it in terms of its Old Testament context. Sometimes we think of prophecy as only like, I will tell you what's going to happen in the future. Right? And, and that maybe is included, but, but the bigger picture is no. Praising God, warning people about the future judgment, calling people to repentance, those, those are all features. And what our passage tells us from Joel that Peter is now quoting is that that spirit is going to come on all the people of God, which right now numbers around 120. Right? And they're all there in this house in Jerusalem. And so when it comes upon them, whether no matter what age they are, no matter what gender they are, no matter what um, station in life they are, they will all prophesy. So Peter says, and, and he keeps quoting, and here's where we see these things, beginning in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So all the people of God, at the end time, in these last days, they're going to 
receive messages from God in a variety of ways. Visions, dreams, all these different ways. And then as a result of that, then they will prophesy regarding those things. Now, what's significant about that is that prior to Pentecost, did all of God's people prophesy? No, it didn't. It's actually a pretty limited group. And even those who experienced that, it came upon them in a, for a very limited time period. So, for example, like King Saul. Do you remember when he prophesied? So, 1 Samuel 10.10 says this. And you can almost hear... Um, what would be the opposite of an echo? Well, this is like the original source of the echo for Pentecost, right? When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. That's King Saul. And the spirit rushed upon him, right? Sounds like Pentecost. And he prophesied among them. Now, so what's happening at Pentecost is that the spirit is falling on all people, not just the king of Israel. Because God is making a new people who will be, all of them will be priests, all of them will be kings, all of them will be prophets. Right? So here they are. Now they're speaking in languages that they didn't previous know, previously know. What are they talking about? The mighty works of God. Probably talking about uh, the future judgment and, and calls of repentance if we can understand their, what they are saying in light of what was done before in the Old Testament and in light of what we see Stephen do in Acts chapter 7. All those are features of, of prophecy, right? Now, were the tongues that they were speaking, were they intelligible? They were intelligible because the crowds were hearing them speak in their own native language. Now, that's interesting because... In Paul, and we'll talk a little bit about this in, in the coming months, but in Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, when you're assembled together, don't speak in tongues if there's not an interpreter. Why? Because then nobody will know what's being said. Right? He says, instead, pray for prophecy. Right? So, well, what, oh, so there's a distinction between tongues and prophecy. Well, not really here, because... These tongues can be, they're intelligible. They, they, people are hearing what is being said. And so what Peter is saying, when the Spirit came down and these people started speaking in tongues that were intelligible, those were prophetic words. Praising God for his mighty works. Calling people to repentance because of the coming day of the Lord. All those things are features, features of prophecy. And that, that latter part of, of calling people to repentance and warnings about the final day of the Lord are features that we're going to see as Peter continues to quote. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. Before the final day of the Lord comes, these things will happen. The great and magnificent day. So the day of the Lord, the final judgment of God, is often uh, accompanied by these cosmic signs both on heaven, in, in heaven and on the earth. And, and this, Joel 2 is not the only place where you see that, right? Isaiah 13.10 is another place, Ezekiel 32.7. There's these places dotted throughout the Old Testament where these features belong to the day of the Lord. 
And what the New Testament does with that is it says, yeah, those things will also happen at Jesus' second coming. So you see that in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13. But what's really crazy is that you see some of these features happen at the cross. There's an earthquake, right? The day goes black because the cross is a day of the Lord where all the covenant curses that we talked about, at least in some kind of symbolic form, are poured out on Jesus. Jesus is as the representative of God's people, receives the complete judgment and wrath of God on himself at the cross. To the point, if you read the covenant curses, the end of the covenant curse is that they are exiled away from the presence of God. What does, what does Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so at the cross, it is a day of the Lord where God brings salvation through judgment as he reckons his own son as an enemy who breaks covenant when he never sinned a day in his life. And he stands in our place. So in the context of of the day of the Lord, right, it's kind of like what what day of the Lord do you want? The day of the Lord where Jesus is the one who stands in your place? You receive God makes the world right again by pouring his judgment out on him and you receive him for your salvation? Is that the day of the Lord that you want? Or do you want, no, I... I don't want to submit to King Jesus. Well, the day of the Lord is still going to come. And it's a very serious thing. And so which day of the Lord do you want? So there's this warning. Part of the tongues, evidently, right, as Peter is speaking, is this warning regarding this coming day of the Lord. But there's another feature of prophecy, though, is comfort for those who repent. And so he ends the quotation in this way. In verse 21 of Acts chapter 2, it says, It shall come to pass, and it shall come to pass that everyone, so think about that in light of the new mission that Jesus has given to his new people, right? You're going to send the gospel to the ends of the earth. And good news, it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, Gentile, servant, Jew, like doesn't matter, male, female, doesn't matter, none of those things matter, like there's, all the different categories that we put people in, none of those matter. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Lord in Joel, which he's quoting from, is Yahweh. But here, this is a reference to Jesus. And that becomes more clear if you go further down in in, in Acts chapter 2. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. But what does he mean by saved? This is a word that we commonly use, but what exactly are we talking about with this word saved? 
maybe some clarity will be brought in if we, if we keep reading in Joel. So Peter quotes the first part of verse 32, but if you were to keep reading, it says this, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. Escape what? The day of the Lord. God's coming judgment. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors, surviving what? The coming day of judgment. Shall be those whom the Lord calls. We, we like to talk about salvation, and we should, but it, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you don't talk about what you're being saved from. And, and so we do a disservice because we feel uncomfortable about talking about God's judgment to the very idea of salvation. Because what, I mean, what does salvation even mean if there's no judgment? But he's saying, no, there's a way of escape. He says this uh, in Joel chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is so crazy because it's like, it's like Pentecost, the cross, the final day of the Lord. <laughs> it's, like, it's, all, it's like all the images are like squishing together. The Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge. He's a place of safety to his people. A stronghold to the people of Israel. And that's what the cross is, right? That, that cleft in the rock where you find safety, right? Where, where God covers you in his righteousness as he brings about a good and better world as he removes evil from it, right? And that would include, if you submit to King Jesus, him removing evil from you, right? But here's the deal. It's like either you submit to him and he removes evil from you, and then you are part of this good and better world, which you don't want to bring your evil with you into the good, better world. Because then it's not a good, better world, is it? Right? Or if you say, I don't, want to, I don't want a part of that program, then he'll be like, well, i got to make a good, a better world, so we'll have to remove you. And those are like, kind of like the two options. And I feel like <laughs> it's a disservice for me not to tell you that. And to know that there's a way of escape in, in Jesus Christ. And so what Peter does here is he responds to the confusion and the accusations of drunkenness by, by letting them know, look, what's happening here is not drunkenness. It's God outpouring his spirit so that these people prophesy to, to warn about the coming day of the Lord and to offer this way of escape and bring you comfort in that way. Now, do you think that everyone hearing the words of Peter were convinced about what Peter was saying? No. There's some people, like we said last time, we, have, we all have friends who they would prefer to understand things naturalistically, to, to find a naturalistic explanation for everything, rather than to accept a supernatural one. And I was one of those people. So this is not judgment on one, uh, on one of those people, but it's just you can be in, in that mindset. And not everyone was convinced, but some were. And in fact, a good many people were. Not because... I mean, what does Peter do here? He just quotes a passage. He doesn't even really explain it. That, you know, like, like, oh, here's this. He just quotes it. And the power of the word with the spirit present, 3,000 people come to faith. 
Right? And, and think about what that means relative to what we said last time. How, how is this new mission of, of, of the message of God going to reach the ends of the world? How in the world is that going to happen? Well, and we see in Pentecost already, like, he brought the nations there, right? And then he provided power for it to happen through Peter. And that's intentional too, right? Where was Peter like 60 days prior to this, right? A girl, not, not even a girl who was mocking him. A girl asked him a question and denied Jesus. I have no association with that man, right? What? And now he's facing thousands of people. There, some of them are like, Wow, this is crazy. What, is it, what does this even mean? And some of them, you guys are drunk. Like they're, and they're mocking him. And thousands of people, now he's like, he's, you know, the text says he stands up, right? And he dresses this crowd. And they, can, you, can you imagine? I mean, I think it must have been just as shocking for him. Like, you know, I've been in my office sometime, and this is just with one person, and I'll like present the gospel, and they're, and they're like, yeah, I, I want to, tr- I want to, repent of my sins, and trust in Jesus. And I, there have been times I'm like, you do? Because <laughs> I don't expect it. Can you imagine, like, Peter, he's there, he's like, well, I'm going to say this thing in obedience to God, and then it's like, all right, was there anybody out there who, who like, wants to follow Jesus? And then, like, 3,000 people say yes. <laughs> it's like, that's a good day, okay? For, for a preacher, that's a good day, right? It's a 3,000, man. And so he, he does this on purpose through Peter to demonstrate, like, this is about God's power. It's not even about, like, a good message or about anything else regarding Peter. Like, Peter is just a screw-up like me, like you. But God, when he comes in his power, he will say things for those who listen and, and obey. Let's pray that we would be those people. Father, you're good, you're powerful, your spirit does things well beyond what can be explained. Lord, we submit to you, if you want to give us visions, give us visions. If you want to give us dreams, give us dreams. Lord, if you want to cause us to speak in languages that we do not know. Do it, God, but do it for your glory. Bring people to you. Father, we want your outpouring here. Thank you for what seems to be an outpouring in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran, Lord. But Lord, please, would you look upon this this dry land here? Spiritual famine here, God. And pour out your spirit here in Turlock that people might might see you and know you and be changed by you. And Father, start with us. Lord, we, we've wandered away from you. We look for life in places other than you. So we come to you now, not rending our garments, but rending our hearts. We return to you now, God. Please do your work in and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.